Good morning. We're in Mark 6. We're going to start in verse 45. If it feels like we've been in Mark 6 for a month, it's because we have. So, Father, in Jesus' name, as we look to your word, we, we first remind our hearts that this is the breath of the Spirit. Lord, we believe this is inspired and fallible without error. And so, as we turn to it, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with an awe and a wonder. Would you speak to us, shape us? Would we glean from the text of Scripture all that you intended us to glean? And Holy Spirit, be first in this house and glorify Jesus in us. Somebody say amen. Amen. Remember again that Mark's gospel very much is shaping the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? So for the first uh, eight chapters, we're kind of having this revelation of Jesus's power and glory. And in chapter eight, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And when Peter says, you're Messiah, the son of God, immediately the book of Mark shifts to show us that he is the lamb who must bleed for our Redemption, And so he's showing us his deity in these first eight chapters, his glory in these first eight chapters. And in the latter, he'll show us that this glorious incarnate son of God will become the lamb of God slain for the nations who will bleed atonement. It's very much about revelation. Christianity at its base is a revelation of the triune God. And this faith calls us into revelation to, to acknowledge, to see to behold the glory of God and to leave the place of, of revelation alone and step into intimate fellowship with God. We used to say, and maybe still say, Christianity is, is, a, is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, fundamentally, Christianity is a religion. I think what we mean by that is that Christianity is not legalism, and that's okay, that's certainly true, but Christianity is definitionally a religion, and when we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, we tended to mean, culturally speaking, that Christianity is this kind of nonchalant, casual friendship with God. We tend to speak of it in our evangelism in a way, when we invite people into Christianity, that they can come into a relationship with God in the same way in which they have a relationship with their coworkers. When we say Christianity is a relationship, we need to stop for 10 minutes and define what we mean by relationship. We don't mean common and casual. When we say Christianity is a relationship, it's, it's, it's covenant with the holy, awesome God of the universe. It's being purchased by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Son of God. It's, it's not like knowing the, the worker at the gas station's name. It's the kind of friendship that surpasses all human relationship. It's deeper, wider, rushes with the river of God. It's so much holier and awesome than the kind of friendship we experience at this level. We need a revelation of how great the God of the word is to understand how deep of a love he's called us into. So we talk again about the Moravians, this this 18th century first Protestant mission movement, 24-hour prayer, uh, gospel mission centers on every continent. Um, I, I want to read to you some lines from uh, from Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians, from his um, kind of biography diary and, and some things he wrote. He said this, and here, again, I want you to hear this line 
and compare and contrast it with what we mean in the West when we say Christianity is about relationship. This is what Zinzendorf said about his relationship with God. He said, Jesus loved from the heart. Look and see my heart aflame for you. I seek and run for all I'm worth. No one gets ahead of me. He's playing with the idea of John running ahead of Peter. No one gets ahead of me. I must find you myself. I must touch you and feel you. He says, is this too bold? Do I want more than what is right? Have I forgotten modesty and overstepped my bounds? If so, forgive me, but love makes me a child. If I just think, beloved life, faithful friend, chosen above all others, how you gave yourself for me and how you meant gloriously well, he says, I dissolve in great desire to see you, Lord. Is that the heart cry of the Christian church? I dissolve in desire to see you. Or do we mean Christianity is a less holy, more common and casual type of religion? Do we dissolve in desire to see Jesus? Faber, one of my favorite poets, said that the lack of desire is the ill of all ills. The lack of desire is the sickness of all sicknesses. When the church lacks desire for the, the beauty of Jesus, the church is at her sickest. He says, your fire burns within me. It blazes up within my inner man. In the zeal of my love, I reject the world and call it crazy. With soul and spirit, I long for your pastures, Emmanuel. Come to meet me in the shepherd's clothes that men and angels praise. See, I'm a weak lamb. Care for me. Protect me. Come, Jesus, see the fire in my soul for you. Feed the flame. Fan it more. Let no one quench it. Let it burn until the light of grace consumes me as a whole. That's the way a man or woman writes when they've really experienced revelation of who God is. This is, this is the call of Christianity to be this infatuated with the glory of God. It's, it's a call to not common casual relationship, but a, but a soul that burns with holy fire for the holy one of the throne room. Do you long to see him? Do you ache with desire? And when we communicate the gospel to one another, when we share the gospel on the streets, are we trying to so dumb down the faith that we can easily pat people into it? Or are we communicating God by the blood of the incarnate son invites you into a relationship that would eat you up and spit you out, would radically change your life? Zinzendorf said, I call the world crazy. I think the desires of the flesh, I think living just to gain money and to gain access to this world. He says, I think that's ridiculous. As we turn to Mark 6 today, we'll come to a a very common passage of scripture. But I want to show you that Mark 6 is very much about revelation. It's very much about seeing who Jesus is. And maybe even this text, we've treated it as so common. We've rehearsed the story in Bible school, and no one ever stops to say, how awesome is this man? Mark 6, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they they came to a land called Nisinerat and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched his garment were made well. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go towards Bethesda. Remember last Sunday, we read um, what we call Jesus's banquet when he took five loaves and a few fish and fed over 5,000 men and not counting women and children. And we said that the disciples had returned from their first missionary journey and they were tired and hungry, remember? And Jesus said, we're going to go away. We're going to have a retreat. So they get in the boat and they go to a desolate place. But when they get there, there have been thousands and thousands of people who have followed them. So we said last week, now the disciples are really hungry and really tired. They're exhausted. But Jesus, rather than feeding them immediately, he says, guys, I want you to buckle up a little while longer. We're going to minister to these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're tired. So Jesus stands and preaches. When it begins to get late in the day, the disciples say to Jesus, send them on because we're all hungry. Send them back to town to get food. There's no food out here in the wilderness. Jesus says, you feed them. They say, all we have is five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes the loaves, he looks to heaven, he prays and breaks, and he multiplies the bread, remember? And when the disciples who were tired and hungry and only had five loaves of bread, these round loaves of bread to eat, when all was said and done, each disciple walked away with a full basket full of bread and fish. Jesus multiplied the resource. And and as if Jesus is saying to the disciples again, "You, you don't have to live and be your own sustenance. You don't have to be your own provision. Even when it looks late and tired and desolate, I'll be your provision. In the natural eye, you only have five loaves of bread. I'll give you a basket each. Now, immediately after this miraculous event, this banquet where thousands of people have eaten, now finally the disciples are fat and happy. Jesus tells them to get into the boat and go to the other side. While Jesus goes alone to pray on a mountain. Jesus insists on having solitude with the Father. You need to learn to be alone with God. You cannot have Christianity without intimate fellowship with God. Again, the revelation is an invitation into communion, into union. Jesus, after a long day of ministry, says to the disciples, not not with this annoyant posture, but he just says to the disciples, get in the boat and go because I need some time now with Father. I need some time to pray. I would compel you, I would urge you to get a prayer life. Without one, I don't think you have anything to offer the world. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, no man is greater than his prayer life. I I think when people come to you for counsel, if you have not been alone with God, they can come and say, I'm depressed. They can come and say, I'm tired. They can come and say, my marriage is falling apart. But if you haven't been alone with God, you have nothing to give them, nothing to say. You're so consumed with your own cares and worries of the world that when someone comes to drink of the well of your soul, you're bone dry. 
prioritize intimacy with God above all else. Intimacy before mission even. I think Jesus is on mission to do the Father's will. But even mission needs a break from time to time so that you can get alone and drink from the well. Intimacy with the Father comes before your marriage. Intimacy with Jesus comes before your parenting. Intimacy with Jesus comes before your goals in life, your life plan. If you don't have intimacy with Jesus, you have no life plan. The rock in which our marriages must be built is that we individually know the depths of Jesus' heart. The only way to accomplish a healthy marriage is for husband and wife to adore Jesus, the Lamb of God. We can't look to our spouses and expect them to be Jesus for us. In the same way, parenting is a great responsibility. But more than anything, what your kids need is a mom or dad who's desperately in love with Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples, we've got a lot of work to do. I've got some more to teach you. We're going to grow. But for now, get in the boat and go because I've got to be alone. The scripture says that the disciples began to row and they are beaten to death again by raging water. We're reminded of this time when Jesus is asleep in the boat. Remember in the early chapters? And there was the storm raging about them. And finally they wake Jesus up and say, don't you care that we're dying? Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm. Peace, be still. He speaks to the storm as if it's an entity, has a personality. And there's some scholars and commentators who suggest that we may be being led to believe that this storm is demonically charged. Now, I wouldn't take that and run with it and build a doctrine of demonic storms. But, but it does seem we are experiencing spiritual warfare, the enemy resisting God's people with whatever tactic he could possibly get his hands on. So now the disciples are out of Jesus' presence. The first time this happened, he was asleep under the boat. Easy to, easy to say, wake up! This time Jesus is over praying on a mountain. And they're, they're rowing. The scripture says that they are, our, our translation said, they're making headway painfully. Making headway painfully. You know what's painful about that? Your forearms and your seasickness. The NIV says they are straining at the oars. They're, they're gritting and groaning and they're exhausted. Now, I want to just remind you again, they were already exhausted. Now they've been rowing all night. The Greek phrase here literally reads, they are being tormented by the storm. They literally, the word is tormented. That means they're exhausted, they're frustrated. Can you imagine like kind of type A Peter standing up and saying, row, row, and everyone's saying, shut up, Peter, sit down. <laughs> Peter's like, someone's got to take charge. They're just straining and striving with the strength of their arms. I do think that there is an image here of what a church looks like that forgets the man who sent you on mission. I think there's an image here of a church who forgets prayer and fasting and worship and intimacy. You strain and you strive and you fuss and you bicker trying to get from point A to point B, but you forgot you were supposed to soar on the Spirit's wings, not row yourself by the strength of your own personality. Making headway painfully. All the while, Jesus is nowhere to be found. 
I think it's very likely that in the boat they have 12 baskets full of bread and fish. Right? Like you're sitting in a boat in the middle of a storm. He already calmed one. You've been healing sick people. You've been casting out demons. And you got you got heavenly manna sitting in the boat. Bread that came from heaven. And somehow the people of God are still so dull that we forget to pray first. Like pray. Look at the bread and remember the God who cared for your soul. The God who satisfied your soul. And pray. Call out to him. Jesus, where are you? But instead they keep bickering. Row, row, row. Struggling, striving. This is a picture of a prayerless church. This is a picture of a spiritless church. This is a picture of a church who leans constantly on leadership principles, who thinks systems are the solution to every problem. This is a picture of a church who thinks that worship's about entertainment and not about encountering the glory of the living God. This is a picture of a church who forgets that worship is first about satisfying the heart of the one being worshipped, which happens to not be you. Now, this, this text is fascinating because it says that Jesus saw that they were, they were being tormented, saw that they were straining at the oars, and Jesus decides to pass them by. They're striving in the flesh, and Jesus is walking on top of the water, gliding in the Spirit. Their first thought is, ghost! So they begin to panic, tremble with fear. Again, fear is not logical. Why not think? Maybe it's the man who just multiplied bread. Maybe it's the man who we've seen raise the dead. Maybe it's the man who just keeps doing whatever he wants to do with water. Make it wine. Dead people get I don't know. Maybe it's him. Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now here, the Greek reads, um, it is I is ego and me. And we know from John's gospel, John shows us these seven I am's. What Jesus literally said is, don't fear, I am. And that's obviously an echo of Exodus chapter 3 when God tells Moses his name is I am. Now this catches our attention and we realize that we're in an hour of revelation. In a moment where the disciples are straining with their flesh, striving with all of their strength, Jesus says, I am. He wants to call their minds to Exodus 3 and to recognize that he is the God in the burning bush. That he is the God who speaks creation into existence. That he is the great I am in all of their trouble, the raging sea. It's really minute compared to the glory and awesome nature of the man standing on the water next to him. The incarnate I am. Again, we're not in relationship with a casual friend. We're not in relationship with a common coworker. We're in relationship with the incarnate Son of God, the I Am. He's superior. He's supreme. All things were made for Him, and in Him all things hold together, Colossians 1. So we're reminded of Exodus chapter 3, and Moses' encounter with the burning bush, and then the I Am revelation, and then we stumble into this phrase that's confused a lot of people, but it says, Jesus intended to pass them by. And we think, what is Jesus doing walking by them? Why would he be passing them by? Shouldn't he be coming to their rescue? When you stop for a minute and you begin to really meditate upon this phrase, he wanted to pass them by. It says he intended. 
to pass them by. You begin to, do you guys understand what we mean by meditate on scripture? You sit before it, you think it over, and you let your mind run as you think of other scriptures and other stories from the from the from God's narrative, you begin to let the Spirit lead you. When you let yourself begin to ponder, what does he mean by he wants to pass them by? You immediately begin to think of Exodus 33, where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 22, while my glory passes you by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And when Elijah, after his great depression and all of his anxiety and wanting to die, when he has this encounter with God in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, he said, God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. When the men of God who are in a desperate position, need a fuller revelation of God, and began to cry, God, show me your glory. Moses and Elijah are like desperate, tired, anxious, and they're saying, God, show me your face. It's the only thing that will sustain me is that I see you. And God says, go to the cleft of the rock and I will cover your face. I'll pass you by. You'll see my glory. Now Jesus says, I wanted it to pass them by. I wanted them to see my glory. Job chapter 9, verse 8 through 11. Job says this, who alone, speaking of God, stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who tramples the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and trampled the waves of the sea? Who, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, Job says, he passes by me. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. There's an Old Testament motif of God revealing himself to his people as he passes by with his glory. Now the disciples are caught in the storm. Jesus knows that they're straining at the oars. And Jesus says he intends to pass them by. But because of their panic and total exhausted frustration, it's almost as if the passing by revelation was aborted because of their tired, anxious flesh. Jesus said, I wanted to pass them by and for them to see my glory, but rather Jesus goes to the boat, and the moment Jesus steps into the boat, everything stops, the storm stops, and he sits down, and the scripture says their hearts were hardened. Now that should cause you to, to ponder, Why, what do you mean their hearts are hardened? How could your hearts be hardened? You're fat on heavenly bread. It says their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand the loaves. They didn't understand the compassion of God. They didn't understand that he alone would be their provision. They didn't understand that he was their all in all, their sustenance and strength. And in their moment of being caught in this raging storm, nobody prayed. No one cried out. They just kept striving, fighting, bickering. And Jesus wanted to show him his glory, wanted them to experience a passing by moment. But instead, he sits down in the boat, stops the storm, and they just move forward. They're hardened because they don't understand the loaves. We stumble into the conclusion of chapter 6, when Jesus is doing ministry at Gennesaret, 
and they anchored ashore, and the crowds flocked to Jesus for healing. And every person who was sick, if they could just touch the fringe of his garment, meaning the outer part of his clothing, they were healed. The scripture says that as many as touched it were healed. And so the disciples, the sinking ship, forget to call out to Christ. But the sick people in Gethsemane, they just touch the very outermost parting of his clothing, and they're filled with a healing power and presence. Is it possible, church, that we forget who walks with us? Why on God's green earth do we keep banging our head against the table, hoping for, that our kids would love Jesus, hoping that our region would have revival and awakening? But when, when do we pray? When do we say to God in frustration, the only thing that will sustain me is a passing by hour? But some of us are so infrequent in our times alone with God. You would, it's like God saying, I, I would love to pass you by. I would love to show, show you my face. I would love for you to experience my glory. But every time I intend to have that hour with you, it's aborted because all you care about is your own strength, your own flesh, your own... I, what, I'm, what I want you to say is, church, that you are weak. And I know American Christianity says you're strong, you're prosperous, you're blessed. No, you're weak. If you are strong, it's only because the Holy Spirit has given you strength. If you prosper, it's only because God blesses you. You're weak and you're frail. And what this scripture calls you to do is to embrace your frailty, your weakness. And it's only in embracing the weakness of the church that the church will ever have power. You don't have power in your personality. You don't have power in your gifting. It's weak. Some of us think of ourselves as the greatest strategist the world's ever known. Oh, God. Get over yourself, man. Seth. And you can say, Caleb, like, what are, what are you really beating at? The church, Christianity, is a revelation of the awesome glory of God, the triune God. And it's an invitation to know him deeper, wider, sweeter than you've ever known anyone in your life. Christianity is not this common, lackluster, we high-five God every now and then and go about our lives. The church in the first century, they met daily to pray. To break bread. They saw thousands and thousands of people come to faith. They saw thousands of people healed, delivered. Great signs and wonders. Maybe the Christianity of the scriptures is not the Christianity of the Bible belt we've been presented. I don't know. Well, what does it mean? What does all of this mean? It means that his glory and knowing him has to rise to centrality in our heart and our vision and mission. The vision and mission of this church. Oh, gosh, can I be slightly rude? Um, Brad said this in the office the other day, which is it was totally his phrase, not mine. Um, I'm lying. When, when we say things like, oh, forgive me, when we say things like um, the mission of our church is love God and love people. Well, yes. That is obviously the mission of the church. Um, but we need to be able to define what we mean by love God and love people. Because again, that just feels really lackluster to me. If our mission is to love God, it's got to be like laid down, passionate, zealous lovers of Jesus. 
And if the mission is really love God, then you, you can't love God by showing up to church twice a month. Like loving God is not an invitation to come to our gatherings every now and then when it's convenient for you. Loving God must be even a greater commitment than loving your spouse and children. Jesus says, if you don't hate your mother and father, your brother and sister, for my sake, you're unworthy of me. Jesus is not calling us to literal hatred. He's just saying in comparison, you ought to, when you say, I, I, I love God, I ought to so surpass your love for your family members that it feels like hatred. But we just keep plugging along. I believe that God is bringing a divine moment to, to us and to our country. I think there's a divine hour ahead. I think there's a passing by moment to be had, a glorious revelation of God's nature and who he is to be had. But I would suggest you cannot have it until we embrace prayer and fasting and desperation and weakness. Fasting, if anything, is a desperation of uh, a declaration of weakness. Letting your body get frail as you cry out to God. And so what I'm, what I'm doing, where I'm trying to lead us as a church, is um, August 11th, we're going to have what we're calling a prayer gathering. And we're going to have some of the greatest teaching on prayer, on fellowship. We're going to have some of the greatest worship. And I'm asking God to birth in the heart of this church weakness, intercession, and I'm asking you, if this is your house, if you call this church your church, I'm asking you to lean in and participate in the idea that the church is not called to common casual faith, but is called to deep, desperate, passionate love for Jesus that takes place in prayer. And from, hear me, I, you guys are going to love me right now. Oh, you're going to love me. Just to totally adore Caleb. July 21 through August 10, I'm asking you to consider whether or not God would have you participate in the 20 day, 21 day fast with me. And, and some of you guys are going, I'm, I'm good. I'll, yeah, Caleb, I'll fast Facebook. Okay. I'm asking you to participate in like a biblical fast, which involves being hungry and tired. For 21 days, I want us as a church to cry out leading up to that prayer gathering. I want us to cry out and ask God to break from us all self-sufficiency, break from us, all the desire to, to look and feel strong, and that God would raise up in our region 20, at least 20 people who would commit their life to intercessory prayer, commit their lives to leading the way in prayer in our region. We cannot have gospel ministry and prayerless churches. We look at the church in China and we say, good God, what are they doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're going on mountains and praying for weeks at a time. You look at churches in the Middle East and you say, oh, God, how are they having such fruit? I'll tell you, they're prayer first people. We're comfort first people, church. I don't say that with accusation in my heart. I say that with conviction in my soul. We are a comfort first society. I'm inviting you to lean in to gospel Christianity, which says we are weak. We are frail. We need first and foremost the power of the Holy Spirit. When Paul prays for the churches, Colossians 1 he says, I pray that you will be filled with all power by his glorious might. Not that you would live healthy lifestyles and have a great self-image and that you would be so you would be a power couple. No, he says, I pray that you would be filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. 
more than this, this community needs another power couple with money and vision who can articulate themselves well. This community needs a church filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. And I've said this to you before, but Leonard Ravenhill again used to say all the time, or, or maybe, maybe it was Tozer. They'd always say stuff like, uh, a move of God, revival, a move of the Spirit, it never goes on sale. It's always the same price. Prayer and fasting. And you could look throughout history, and I dare you, I dare you to look throughout history and look for hours when the church was at her best winning souls. And I promise you, you will find prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting. We, we can't go with the flow of cultural Christianity. Did you know that only dead things go downstream? So again, those dates are July 21 through August 10th. The prayer gathering is going to be August 11th. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit to shift the culture of this church. And some of you say, I have no vision for my life. Like, I don't know what my destiny is. I felt God pigeonholing me recently, like putting his finger in my heart and saying, Caleb, you are going to be a person of prayer, period. Period. I want you to give yourself daily to extended hours of prayer. And I'm, and I'm talking to God and I've got a lot of kids. I've got a lot to do. I've got people to care for. And there became a place where finally I said, okay, God, shift to the entire narrative of my life. Change my schedule. Delete Google calendars, Brad. Brad's like, please don't. Like, I will shape my life around a call to ask for the Spirit's power and presence to bring gospel fruit in our region. I will give my life to that. And, and guys, I'm asking some of you, I think some of you have been wrestling with the Holy Spirit right now. I'm asking some of you to not resist, not let your hearts grow hard, not resist the passing by hour, and to lean in and say, I'll embrace weakness, I'll embrace boredom. I understand that prayer meetings aren't the most thrilling thing you've ever been to. Sometimes they're wonderfully thrilling. Sometimes they're long. I'm asking you to, to say, I don't care if it's boring, I want the glory of Jesus in our region more than anything else. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me. Pastor Brad, why don't you come and get ready to serve us communion? As we go to the Lord's table, it again is just a recognition of our weakness and dependence on the blood of Jesus, on his work.